Uh, in here, uh, we're continuing a series that we began a couple of weeks ago on the book of Colossians called In Christ, Finding Our Identity in the Supreme King. In my uh, introduction to this series a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that one of the things that Paul does in this letter is uh, address uh, some heresies that were gaining prominence in the city of Colossae. And um, Paul was concerned about the Christians who were there uh, being influenced by that heresy. And so he wrote them a letter. And, and one of his solutions to, to push back against that heresy was to give them a better understanding of who Jesus is. It seems that Paul knew that uh, knowing who the real Jesus is uh, would help them uh, stay away from counterfeit Jesuses or or heresies about him. And in some of my reading this week, I was was really impressed, not in a good way, um, uh, about our own need to better understand who Jesus is, maybe just as much as the Colossians were in need of that. A recent poll this, this year uh, shows that, and I've got some of these up here, 76% of Americans, all Americans, uh, believe in a real flesh and blood historical Jesus. Um, as we might expect, that number is higher among Christians, among evangelicals. Uh, That number is over 95%. Here's kind of a weird thing, though, about that statistic. Uh, the, The survey said that Americans are more likely to agree that Jesus was an important spiritual figure than they are to agree that he was a historical person. So 84% say they believe Jesus was an important spiritual figure, but only 76% think he was real. Um, I I don't know what to do with that. I guess they think he's an important fictitious figure. I don't know. Here's another one. Uh, In 2014, 43% of Americans believed that Jesus was God. Today... Uh, 2022, uh, that number has dropped to 30%. More disturbing to me is that only 50% of evangelicals say they believe Jesus was God. Um, just as a, as a side note, what, what I see happening... Uh, in our world today is something that uh, some people are calling cultural evangelicals that really isn't uh, what that word uh, initially meant. So, so we see a, a shift happening. So only 50% of evangelicals believe that Jesus was God. Here's another stat. 55% of all Americans believe that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God. Again, what's disturbing, really disturbing to me, is that 73% of evangelicals believe this same thing. 
And if you're here this morning and, and you don't know why that's a bad thing, uh, this sermon is going to be really important uh, for you this morning. That's a bad thing, that, that statistic right there, okay? Uh, one more. Uh, with, with all of these, what I think are sort of crazy, goofy beliefs about Jesus, this last one blows me away. 99% of evangelicals believe the Bible is the highest authority for what they believe. 99%. Does that sound like a really great statistic? And yet, those 99% who say the Bible is the most important authority for what they believe aren't sure Jesus really existed or was God or was raised from the dead. It seems that maybe they don't read this book that they say is the most important authority in their lives, right? Um, so for me anyway, these were, these were sort of disturbing uh, statistics on, on the state of, uh, of our world today, I guess I would say. So uh, we need this passage that we're going to look at today because uh, I think it's going to clear up uh, for some of us anyway uh, some of these um, goofy or, or dare I say, heretical beliefs about Jesus. So Colossians 1, beginning at verse 15, that's on page 950 of the Bibles that the ushers handed out. Colossians 1, 15. He, King Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you wholly faultless and blameless before him, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So before we unpack this, uh, let's, let's pray together. God, I pray that you would speak to our, uh, our hearts this morning, uh, that you would give us ears to hear, minds to Uh, comprehend and understand and hearts to receive uh, what we're going to look at this morning. I pray that that we would have a sense that we have, uh, in in these words, we have heard from the living God. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Colossians 1, 15 through 20 uh, is, is almost certainly 
uh, a hymn of the early church. Um, Virtually all Bible scholars agree on that. Some want to quibble about it a little bit, but almost everyone agrees that that's so. Um, After I finished seminary, uh, the senior pastor of the church that I first worked in uh, as a worship leader uh, told me that he felt that the songs I led uh, the congregation in singing were almost more important than his sermon. And I I looked at him like he had lost his ever-loving evangelical mind and said, what? And he said... Here's why. Most of our theology is caught, not taught. Most of our theology is caught, not taught. In other words, most of what we believe about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and our our faith is stuff we've sort of picked up incidentally. And, And oftentimes we pick it up from what we sing. Um, and I think he was right. Um, so maybe that's why Paul chose to put this deeply theological set of truths uh, about Jesus in a, in a hymn. Um, uh, Bible scholars call this the Christ hymn. Uh, I, I think maybe Paul knew that if he, if he could get the Colossians to, to sing these lines over and over again, that the truths would begin to to work their way down into them, that they would be caught, um, and and that it would help them guard against uh, some of the false teachings about Jesus that they were facing. Now, there are a number of things that are important to understand in this hymn, and so we're going to go back up to verse 15 and and see if we can identify um, some of them here. And there's more in here than I can unpack uh, just this morning. But uh, the first thing that the Christ hymn teaches us is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Uh, Even though 50% of evangelical Christians uh, must not read their Bibles, um, the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. And so if you want to know who God is, Look at Jesus. Look long and hard at Jesus. Uh, it's, it's one of the best ways you're going to understand who God is. So the first stanza of this hymn begins by saying that Jesus is the image, or icon is the, is the word under that, maybe a familiar term. Uh, Jesus is the icon of the invisible or the unseen God. Now, we often think of an icon as... Um, maybe like a painted uh, image or or reasonable likeness of something. Uh, We have icons on our phones and our computers that sort of indicate uh, what the thing is that will open if you click on that, right? Um, Sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, I look at it and go, what is, what's that going to, whoa, that's not what I, right? It's not that close of a, a representation. But that's not how the Bible uses the word icon. Um, um, See if I can show you why. Hebrews 1 is a sort of a parallel um, hymn, uh, if you will, um, to Colossians 1. 
Hebrews 1.3 sheds some light, I think, on the Colossians uh, hymn uh, when it says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his essence. Jesus isn't just like God. He doesn't just point the way to God. He is the exact imprint of God's essence. Uh, The Apostle John tried to capture this same truth in his poetic prologue uh, in, in the Gospel of John that Zach read from earlier. He says, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, has revealed him. In John 14, Thomas asked Jesus to show them the Father. And Jesus actually got a little frustrated with Thomas and the other disciples. Have I been with you so long, he says, and you still don't get this. And then he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In a, in a, in a beautiful uh, close the loop on that question. Just a few chapters later, the, the light switch went on for Thomas. And when he saw the risen Jesus, you remember what he said? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And then in Colossians 2, uh, we'll come to it here in a couple of weeks, uh, Paul will restate this in an even more powerful way. He will say there in Colossians 2.9 that the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. So what I'm trying to get you to see this morning is that Colossians 1.15 is just one of many places in the Bible that clearly state that Jesus was and is God. And Paul wanted the Colossian Christians to get this truth way down inside them. Because just like we have people today who say that Jesus was a good person or a great teacher the Colossians were being told that Jesus was somehow less than God. A good person, for sure, but certainly not on par with the one true God. So, uh, the second line of the hymn, then, says that he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, the word firstborn can be a little tricky, uh, and it's probably led to some of the bad theology that we talked about in in that survey, uh, particularly the one that said people believe that Jesus was the first being created by God. Uh, This is is one of the verses that they point to. So firstborn, what what does that word mean? Uh, Luke 2 talks about Jesus being the firstborn son of Mary. So chronologically, Jesus was her first child. Paul is using the term firstborn in a, in a different way. He's using it to, to refer to rank or importance. Firstborn was a term that, that was often used to refer to the emperor. So this verse doesn't mean that at some point the Son of God was created, like some cults teach. Uh, John 1, that, that Zach read for us, tells us that he was there at the very beginning With God, the very beginning, before anything else existed, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, 
existed with the Father and the Spirit. Yes, John 1 tells us that there was a point in history when he took on flesh, right? Became human. But the Bible is clear that he existed from eternity past before that moment, okay? So Paul is telling the Colossians and us that there's uh, no one in all of creation that is of higher rank or greater importance than Jesus. And the theological term that we use to describe this is the word preeminent. Uh, Another way to say that is that Jesus is the supreme king over creation. There is no one higher. And then the hymn gives three reasons why. First of all, he's supreme king because he created all things. Now, now most of our translations say for everything was created by him, but, but Bible scholars say that for might be better translated or understood uh, with the word because. In other words, he is the firstborn over all creation because everything was created by him. He is higher than anyone else in all of creation because he created everything. Do you see? Paul's first reason for saying Jesus is preeminent is because Jesus is the creator. And then Paul uses some extreme uh, words uh, to say this and this and everything in between, right? Uh, Everything in heaven, everything on earth and everything in between. Everything you can see and everything you can't see and everything in between. All seats of power uh, and and those who sit on those seats, whether those are human powers or uh, uh, spiritual powers, okay? All of those things, literally all things were created by him. Paul leaves nothing out. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is supreme because he created everything. Secondly, the Christ hymn tells us that Jesus is preeminent or supreme because he owns everything. Okay, verse 16 says that all things were created for him. In in the first century Greek and Roman culture, uh, gods were created by people to serve people. Okay, and in contrast to that, Paul's him turns that upside down and tells us that we were created to serve King Jesus. Everything we are, everything we have, ultimately belongs to Him. Okay. So Jesus is the preeminent or supreme king because first he created everything, secondly because he owns everything, and thirdly because he sustains everything. Look at verse 17. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. Now the the Greek word that Paul uses here can mean before as in time, like this thing happened before this thing. Or it can mean above, as in rank or importance. And in this case, both of those understandings would be true. He is the uncreated one who always was. So he was uh, chronologically before anything else. And as we have already seen, he is the first in rank, first 
in importance. He is above everything and everyone else. But the last part of, of verse 17 is critical to our understanding of his preeminence. It says that he holds all things together. Uh, again, looking at Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews 1, three says that he sustains everything with his powerful word. He sustains everything with his word. Everything we can see, everything we can't see, owes its present existence right now to his uh, sustaining work, okay? In contrast to a, a world that needed to sustain its gods, to, to polish them, dust them, feed them, you know, hold them, nurture them, he holds everything together. He sustains us. As Paul said to the Athenians, in him we live and move and have our being. We exist because of him. We are sustained because of him. There's, a, there's an old Star Trek episode, old like TV. So that's, that's my realm of Star Trek, right? So uh, they're on some planet, uh, Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock, and Bones are on some planet, and and uh, there's this sort of wicked god uh, that that the people of that planet worship, and um, he's causing all kinds of problems, right? But Captain Kirk figures out uh, that if they will stop worshiping him, stop feeding him, he will lose his power and eventually die. And so that's what they do, right? That's not our God. Everyone on earth could stop worshiping him and it wouldn't change who he is. We don't sustain him. He sustains us. So that's the first stanza of this hymn. And I'm saying stanza instead of verse because that stanza is broken into multiple verses. But if you, if you think of a stanza of a hymn, like in a hymnal or um, a verse of a song, that's, that's the first stanza. Uh, and in it, Paul affirms that uh, uh, Jesus is God, that he is the supreme king over all creation, uh, not only creating it, but sustaining it. And, and then in the second stanza, Paul takes all of that and applies it to the church. Let's look at uh, verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. So Paul begins the second stanza of the hymn by affirming that Jesus is the head of this body of believers known as the church. And it's important that we understand we're not talking about just Grace Baptist Church. We're talking about the universal church, okay? In chapter 2, Paul will say that this headship should be understood to mean that he is its source, which is kind of what he's saying here when he says he is the beginning. He started this. He is the source. Uh, In Colossians 2.19, he says, from the head, the whole body is supported and nourished. So just like Jesus is the one that holds all things together in creation, Jesus is the one that holds all things together in his church. 
And then we see the word firstborn again, sort of a parallel with the first stanza, right? This time, the word firstborn is referring to his resurrection, firstborn from the dead. And like before, this is a first in rank or importance. What does that mean? Well, it means that it's only because of his resurrection that we anticipate our own resurrection to eternal life. It's only because of his resurrection that we are brought spiritually from death into life and to live a resurrected life here and now. Um, It's only because of his resurrection that he holds the highest place of honor as the church's head. Um, His resurrection, him being firstborn from the dead, means that he has first place in everything. The Colossian Christians needed to understand that. We do too, I think. Um, Sometimes we can tend to think that this is our church. My church. We pay dues to be a part of a club and we get to make decisions because we're a part of that club. We feel important because we're a part of that. Friends, it's not my church. It's not your church, even if you've been here for 30, 40, 50 years. You're a part of it, but it's not yours. The church belongs to Jesus. And if at any point he's not in charge, he's not our head and our our source, and we've stopped being the church and we've become something else. I don't know what it is, but it isn't the church if we do that. I think mostly we do that here. So I'm not trying to come down on you about that. I'm just reminding you, Jesus is the head of the church. Continue into verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So verse 19 reaffirms what the hymn says in the first stanza, back up there in in verse 15, that Jesus is fully God. Uh, The word for dwell here in verse 19 is not a temporary dwelling. God didn't check into Motel Jesus for a while and then move on. Okay? It's a permanent dwelling, forever dwelling. As I said earlier, this is intended to push back against the heresies that were prominent in Colossae. Uh, Paul wanted these Colossian Christians to understand in the most certain terms, that Jesus was God. Jesus is God. That's not the only parallel between the first stanza and the second. Uh, Verse 16 of the first stanza, we saw him creating everything that exists. In verse 20 of the second stanza, we see him recreating or reconciling all things, all things to God. And the all things here is not just people. It's all of creation. Romans 8 tells us that all of creation suffered the consequences 
of sin entering into the world. All of creation, not just people. And all of creation is being reconciled back to God. Uh, How? Through Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus' brilliant teaching, and it was brilliant, but it didn't save anyone. Jesus' love for all people, and he did. It didn't save anyone. Even Jesus' miracles or the fact that he was God didn't save anyone. It didn't reconcile anyone. It didn't bring peace to anyone. It was Jesus' shed blood and death on the cross that did it. And Paul wants us to make sure we understand that. For the Colossians who were being confronted with heresy, faith in the, in the God-man, something that none of us can wrap our minds around, but we can say that it's true. Faith in Jesus, this, this man who was completely human and at the same time completely God. Faith in him who died on the cross in their place was the only thing that would save them. Not believing or praying to angels, which was one of the heresies that that came. Not uh, 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 keeping or obeying more of the the Jewish law. Another heresy that was coming at them. That wasn't going to do it. Not forsaking material things as as evil uh, so that they could ascend to some sort of esoteric spirituality. That's what the Gnostics were, were doing. None of that was going to save them. It was only by the work of Jesus on the cross that they would find peace with God. And the same is true for us. Now that's the end of the hymn. We're going to go two more verses. I read them earlier. uh, Because Paul adds an application to help the Colossians understand what this hymn means for them and, and for us. Look at verse 21. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul wants these Colossian Christians to know that this hymn is talking about them. The the truths laid out in the hymn about reconciliation and peace are for them. And they are for us. We were alienated and hostile toward God. You might say, me? Who, me? I've never been hostile to God. If I was hostile to God, I wouldn't be in church. Right? Well, Paul says that our actions might say something different. Our evil actions make us enemies of God. Let me say it a different way. This hymn is about a king who existed from eternity past. He created the universe, all that we can see and, and everything that we can't see. 
He owns it all. He holds it all together. He rules over all of it. He is the king. And anyone who does not acknowledge that he is king, anyone who does not acknowledge his kingdom or his kingship is a hostile enemy. Even if it's subversive. If you're not recognizing him as king, you're an enemy. Okay? But the good news and it is good news. That's what the word gospel means. Good news. Capital G, good news. Okay? The good news is that through Christ's physical death on the cross, we've been reconciled to God. Though we were once his enemies, we now have peace with him. We now stand faultless and blameless and holy before him. It's amazing. And then something we don't like to look at very often, Paul adds a caution. And these cautions are are found throughout the New Testament. And his caution is this, as long as they remain grounded and steadfast and don't get shifted away from the gospel they heard when they first believed. Because the Colossians were being enticed by another gospel that wasn't the gospel. Friends, evangelicals today are being enticed by another gospel that isn't the gospel. What was it, 73% don't, be, don't believe he was God? Is that what, I, maybe, that's, maybe it's 50% don't believe he was God. 73% believe he was created by God. That's not the gospel. Okay? We have people today who are believing a, a different Gospel. Colossians were being told that they had to add this spiritual practice or this legalistic behavior in order to really be saved. They were being told that Jesus wasn't really God, that he wasn't really the supreme king, that there were other ways to God that might be better. And Paul says, no, no. You have got to stay true to what you were already told. And so here's a hymn to sing and and get it ingrained down in you. Don't forget these truths. Christ is the supreme king. He is the creator of everything. And it's his death on the cross that brought you peace with God. So you serve King Jesus and only King Jesus. You know, there, there are a lot of things that can be said about Jesus. We, we study his life and, and we learn a lot about him. Uh, when, we, when we watch his life, we learn a lot from him to, to apply to our own lives. And we need to do that. We are wise to do that. But if we don't get this teaching about Jesus right, we will never give our lives to learning how to follow him or or completely surrender to him. If if Jesus is just a a wise teacher or a a good example for us to follow, we won't listen and we won't follow. We won't. 
And I say that because we don't. But if we would truly come to grips with these foundational truths that that Paul puts forth in this hymn, that, that he truly is the supreme ruler, creator, sustainer, reconciler, how could we not listen to him? How could we not follow and obey? How could we not surrender everything to him? Uh, I'm going to move back over to the piano here. A number of years ago, um, I took a stab at at, uh, setting uh, the truths of this hymn uh, to music. We we sang it together in, in my last church. Um, I know this is the first time that, that you're hearing it, um, but I'd like to invite you to um, celebrate and um, affirm and align yourself under the supremacy of Christ as King. Uh, so... Do your best to to join with us in, in singing.